0: This is Space 101.1 KMGP-LPFM, Magnuson Park.
1: That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard! And get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell.
0: I'm Felix Bonnell, and on this special summertime edition of Cascade of History, we dig into the archives of the old Columbia Conversations podcast, which I used to produce and host for the Washington State Historical Society. Later, we're going to hear from meteorologist Scott Sistek, who I spoke with in the summer of 2021. This was just after the big heat dome episode. I wanted to talk to Scott while the memories were still fresh and kind of create something for the archives, which I think we successfully did.
2: This was a heat wave that went beyond the scope of any local meteorologist or even national meteorologist would even think was remotely possible here.
0: Before that, though, my first conversation is with longtime Cairo TV journalist Essex Porter, who I spoke with on the occasion of his retirement after 40 years of working in the Pacific Northwest. For those who may not be as familiar with your work because maybe they don't live in the area or they're relatively new to town, can you give us a brief sketch of what your journalism career consisted of here in Seattle?
3: Well, I uh, came uh, to Seattle from Portland in, and started in September of 1982 at uh, Cairo TV Channel 7. Uh, During that time, I've I've been a reporter, I've been uh, co-anchor of the Morning News, I was the first Eastside Bureau Chief, I was uh, the anchor of uh, what we called the uh, Puget Sound uh, Business Report for a time, Uh, I've worked every single shift, including Graveyard, (laughs) and uh, uh, I've covered all kinds of stories, but I focused as much as I could. On politics and government. Um, you know, I, I've uh, interviewed uh, every Seattle mayor or ex mayor since uh, Wes Ullman.
0: <laughs>
3: and uh, I have uh, interviewed every governor or ex governor since uh, Dixie Libre.
0: I mean, this is kind of a dumb question, but I often find that journalists, especially career journalists like yourself, the overlap between someone who does day-to-day reporting on what's going on and the interest and knowledge of broader history and context that gets us to where we are today or where we might be headed tomorrow. Is that true for you? Are you a history guy as well?
3: I, I am a history guy, uh, you know, certainly uh, not steeped in it as much as you are. <laughs> and I didn't grow up in Washington, so I don't know a ton of Washington history. I know, I know some, but, uh, you know, it, it's very you do see the parallels and it's, uh, and, and it it can, you know, it's, it's, if you haven't lived the history, it can be a little harder to to see, but, uh, you know, some of the, some of the same struggles we have now, um, we faced, uh, you know, shaped maybe a little differently, but the, the basic struggles are the same.
0: And you said you were in Portland before, um, where did you grow up and when did you first move to Portland? I'm a military kid.
3: I'm, I am, uh, a native of Chicago, but I did not grow up there. Um, um, my dad was in the Army, uh, so I did a lot of growing up on Okinawa, Japan. We had uh, two tours there. Uh, I did a lot of growing up uh, in uh, Junction City, Fort Riley, Kansas. Uh, we had a couple of tours there. Uh, and uh, I uh, was lucky to spend uh, my senior year in high school uh, when we were assigned uh, to Hawaii. So uh, I'm a graduate of Redford High School uh, in Hawaii. That's the high school that serves uh, the Pearl Harbor uh, Navy base.
0: Wow. And so when you came to Seattle in 1982, how old were you?
3: Uh, Oh, that's a a really good question. I I have to to, uh, do the
0: math. (laughs) Uh,
3: I was, you know, I was fairly young, certainly much younger, but, you know, yep, yep. You know, you're asking a reporter to do math here. They said there'd be no math. That's why we got into reporting. Yeah. What what
0: did attract you to journalism?
3: Oh, just that sense of being there when history is made. I think that's the first thing. Uh you know, I was always interested in uh public affairs uh and history uh as a student. Um and you know, you, the great events would happen. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've told this story on Twitter a few times, but I, uh, I was a second grader in Kansas uh, the day that President Kennedy was assassinated. And, you know, uh, back then they would let second graders walk maybe a, a third of a mile or whatever, uh, home by themselves, have lunch at home, uh, and then, and then walk back to, uh, to school. And, uh, you know, my, my mom was working, so I was a latchkey kid. I'd go, I'd walk home, I'd uh, have my lunch. Uh, I'd watch some television. I remember the bulletin slide from CBS News. That was the one station we got really clearly at that time, those days before cable. And I w- didn't want to be late for school, so I left before they announced that President Kennedy had been killed. I didn't find out until I'd gotten back uh, to school. And all that weekend, um, my family and I, we watched the coverage. Uh, The station we could get was the CBS station. We loved Walter Cronkite anyway. Uh, We watched all of his coverage. Um, Federal employees uh, had the the day off that uh, monday so that the nation could watch the funeral uh, and you know uh, i didn't know it then really because i really wanted to be a scientist but i think
0: that's where the seed was planted yeah you are a history guy i, got news. <laughs> I mean that's that's that i mean that's exactly I, that that we're describing that wanting to be there to sort of talk about things that are happening and being aware of the import and the weight of things, especially when you're that young in age. I've talked to so many journalists who get that kind of, maybe they get it from their parents or something, but they're exposed to some big world event or national event, and it just sort of charts the path for wanting to be involved in sharing those stories. So that's, that, that's a great origin story. It makes perfect sense to me. Um, so Seattle, 1982. Let me ask one of my big dumb questions. What was Seattle like in 1982 for you, an African-American guy coming to town as a journalist?
3: well you know to me uh, you know as an african-american guy uh, Seattle was no more or less open than uh, any other place that I had experienced um, you know I I did not experience uh, uh, you know overt discrimination overt racism um, now you know frankly it's a defense mechanism um, and 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 Former CBS correspondent Ed Bradley talked about this in a visit to Seattle. You know, you you can see something as a black person that will make you angry every day, and if you react to every single thing, you will be completely crazy. So, as a defense mechanism, um, I didn't react to everything I might have seen. Sometimes, you know, my brain didn't even see it, even if it was happening. So. You know, I felt um, and I certainly felt welcome among my colleagues uh, at at Cairo. So, um, you know, for me, the um, the the challenge was, you know, meeting and getting to know uh, some of the, the the leaders and community members in the black community here so I could help tell their story. But that was the same thing for me in trying to learn some of the leaders and, and people uh, in the multiple Asian communities uh, that are here as well. Um, I wanted to get to know people so that I could uh, tell some of the stories that might not normally be uh, on the agenda of, of a news department and a, and a station um, you know, that was led by whites. Who might not just be thinking that there are other stories that need to be told?
0: And you know, in, in terms of your individual, your personal experiences here, especially in that early, the early '80s when you first were here, did you ever get pushed back um, trying to do a story with overt racism?
3: Yeah, uh, no, not certainly, certainly not that I noticed. But again, I'm not, you know. I'm not always looking. It it had to be blatant for me to see it. No, no. So people, people, people push back on telling stories because they didn't want the stories to be told. It wasn't, it wasn't the race of the reporter that was the problem. It was what they were
0: doing in the story. That was the problem. It's that old old sort of Mike Wallace is out in the driveway kind of effect. Um, Yeah. There was a lot more of that. (laughs) Um, What about, you know, Seattle in general? I mean, I, I'm, I was born in 1968. So I think I was 13 or 14 in 1982 when you first started reporting at Cairo TV. And I was a viewer. And I, my memory of Seattle in those days is, you know, it's rotary dial phones. There's no cell phones. There's, you know, there's only a handful of TV stations because we didn't have cable. And there's, you know, there's radio stations and everything and a couple of daily newspapers. In terms of the uh, the character or the personality in that unique place you've been in for 40 years, watching the city grow and change and evolve as people move here and people move away and money comes in through Microsoft and other technology and Boeing leaves town, the headquarters leaves town anyway. Can you point to things and say, yeah, these things are different? These, these things have changed about the character of the city uh, that I first came to in 1982?
3: Yeah, you know, uh, this, this was very much uh, Emmett Watson's city. Um, You know, that that lesser Seattle thought. Um, And it always struck me, remember, I'm not from here. So it always struck me that Seattle was the city that was very uncomfortable growing up. (laughs) So, you know, Seattle, Seattle, you know, one strain wanted prosperity, uh, wanted to be a world-class city. And the other strain was like, does that mean things are going to have to change? <laughs> and so there, you know, and that tension made for a lot of the stories I really love to cover. Uh, one of the stories uh, I covered was uh, when the, the Columbia tower was built, that stunned people that you could actually build a building that tall in Seattle. What the <laughs> heck is going on here? So then there was an initiative to limit the size of skyscrapers. You remember
0: that? Boy, I had, hadn't thought about that for decades. I forgot completely about that, actually.
3: Yes. Yeah, there was a, <laughs> there was an initiative to limit the size of skyscrapers. And the initiative passed. <laughs> so for a time, you know, that's what put some of the, the limits on how high you could build. And then there were uh, things you could put, you could add to a skyscraper, like a daycare center to uh, gain a few more floors. And it also uh, led to the development of the high-rise uh, apartments and condos that you see, especially uh, in the Belltown area. So, um, but you know, that was the kind of tension that 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 I witnessed that I uh, covered uh, in this city.
0: And for someone who might not know who Emmett Watson was, can you describe Emmett Watson and what Lesser Seattle represented from your perspective? Sort of moving here when you did.
3: Um, you know, uh, Emmett Watson, and uh, you know, I want to be I want to be careful uh, because I'm doing this from memory. Uh, but uh, you know, Emmett Watson was uh, a, a writer, uh, uh, newspaper columnist, uh, who who championed the idea that Seattle should not lose its special character, as he saw it, the special character from the 40s, the 50s, uh, the 60s uh, as Seattle grew up. And so, uh, he was, uh, he was a proponent of, of growing slowly. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, not, uh, not inviting the world here to, uh, to show up and, uh, bit up the price of houses and build skyscrapers for offices. Um, and, you know, the whole movement was called, uh, uh, Lesser Seattle. And I think, you know, some of it, some of that I'm sure was, uh, you know, a bit of an exaggeration on his part, but he wanted to make people think of where we were going, what we were doing, what we might be giving up as Seattle changed.
0: And It always seemed to me that Seattle was that, you know, it was, it was the people who were pushing for faster growth and that world city connection. It seems like those people pretty much trialed and triumphed and prevailed with things like the Goodwill Games here and with even the World's Fair way back in 1962. Right. But it seemed to me, and maybe tell me what you think about this, because you you probably covered this. There was that time, I think it was around, I can't remember the year exactly, sometime around the year 2000, maybe a few years before that, where the city council killed the bid for the Olympics. That, to me, seemed like that's where Seattle officially is not trying to be this world-class city of the highest degree possible. They've got, there's, there's a too much uh, trepidation or too much reluctance to try to do what an Olympics would do to this city, which isn't necessarily a good thing. I mean, it depends on your perspective, but I don't know if you remember that as, am I making more of a big deal than that actually was? Yeah, I,
3: I don't think so, but, it, and again, I'm, you know, uh, memories can be fuzzy, so I'm not going to be precise on the timeline. Of course. But in, in that, in that general, in that general uh, timeline, um, you know, the, the Goodwill Games had been an, uh, an unexpected su- success here. You know, I remember uh, at Cairo Radio, back when Cairo Radio and Cairo TV were, were, were co-owned,
0: mm-hmm.
3: Cairo Radio made a huge deal of extending traffic reports from the morning drive where they had always been to all-day traffic reports for fear that the Goodwill <laughs> Games would clog all the traffic and people would need to know. And that's how we got all-day traffic reports. <laughs> well, it turned out there was no traffic. The Goodwill Games ran so well, it was great. But we kept the all-day traffic report.
0: <laughs> Your That's a good okay. point. Yeah, you're right.
3: <laughs> and also, remember right around that time, uh, we had the WTO meeting. Yeah. And uh, w, WTO and those riots. So... There got to be the feeling that, you know, bringing the world to Seattle could be more expensive and troublesome uh, than it might be worth. Yeah. And plus, even then, everybody knew that the Olympics simply is a major budget drainer for any city that that takes it up, and, which is why almost no city's been on it anymore. Yeah. And that's and, just and, that's and, just
0: for the bribes you're talking about now. <laughs> <laughs> um. So so with, back to Emmett Watson and back to 1982 versus 2022, did Seattle lose its character? Has the city changed beyond where it should have changed or could have changed? Has it lost its way compared to 40 years ago?
3: I don't think Seattle has lost its way. Uh, but
0: has it lost its character? You know,
3: was there a single character to Seattle anyway? And, you know, for some folks, I, I think Seattle has lost its character. Um, you know, for, for me personally, you know, I always wanted to live in a big city. Uh, Seattle was the biggest city I'd ever uh, had lived in. Um, and I'm always, I, I had always looked to the future and, you know, the the icon Space Needle gives Seattle such a, a futuristic look. You know, I always say, uh, I was a huge fan of that Jetsons cartoon. <laughs> yep. And the Space Needle looks just like the Jetsons or the Jetsons looks just like the Space Needle, <laughs> but I thought, you know, for me, that's all great. Uh, there, there are, there are, you know, definite, definitely, things that have been lost. I think the bigger problem is, is that as many have prospered here, many have been left behind, and it's tougher for many.
1: Yeah.
3: And um, if those who had been left, who have been left behind, were doing a little better. I think we would all be more comfortable with the changes that have come.
0: Yeah, nicely put. And I imagine there's stories that you probably covered again and again throughout those 40 years where there was little to no progress. Um, I mean, TV journalism has changed quite a bit. For one, one sort of fluffy question before the deeper question. Did they ever make you go and talk to the guys who set up couches out on Fourth Avenue for the torchlight parade before the parade like the day before?
3: Uh, yeah, so I've talked to
0: this. <laughs> that was always my favorite story. It was just—it was so predictable. Every summer there'd be the guys with the couches out on Fourth Avenue, and I—I missed that kind of TV journalism. That seems like it's from a different time. Like I don't think there's um, isn't necessarily the the airtime for those kinds of stories anymore because it's just there's there's so much other bad news or things have sped up.
3: How, well, you know, it's, these these days some of the news is a, a little more intense, so you you don't necessarily <laughs> get a, get around to that. Yeah. Um, you know, um, when the, when there were quiet periods for news, uh, we love to to cover uh, the torchlight parade. Uh, you yeah. know, I was I was pleased to be asked uh, to be part of the torchlight parade. You know, actual live coverage. Oh wow! Uh, one year it got sprayed with silly string and, and the whole thing.
0: <laughs> so, so how did TV news change in the time? You know, along with the technology, you know, speeding up and getting smaller and lighter and faster. I guess. What changes did you witness in those 40 years of, of covering Seattle through, the, through a television camera?
3: Well, everything sped up for TV news, too. Um, uh, you know, when I came to Seattle, we were already using the electronic cameras. But when I started covering TV news, we were using film. And film slowed things down because, you you know, you needed an hour or two to, to, to be sure the film could be processed in time for the news. You didn't do uh, multiple newscasts spread throughout the day. And um, you certainly didn't go, uh, you certainly didn't present your stories live uh, from from every venue. Uh, so the, the, tech, the technology made it possible uh, for news to be on all the time, for a local station to have, uh, you know, multiple hours of news a day. And I I don't think I can count uh, quickly enough how many hours of news per day we have at channel seven. But uh, and, and and channel seven doesn't have as many hours of news per day as as some of the other stations in town. But uh, when the news is, when the news is always on, you know, there's less time to cover the more secondary stories or to, cover those stories that aren't the breaking, biggest headlines of the day. Uh, because you, know, you are you, know, you are making sure that every one of those newscasts has the latest breaking content. And after you've spent your resources doing that, um, there's not much time to do much else. Uh, you know, and that's not to say that there aren't, you know, when you watch news here uh, in Seattle, you do see in-depth reporting. Uh, you do see an in, investigative uh, reporting, um, uh, but you don't always see sort of that those stories that are in between that, that take more time, but uh, you know aren't the, aren't the hard-hitting investigative pieces.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, I imagine 40 years ago, I mean, I know 40 years ago, you weren't having to then go do your Twitter feed or your Facebook or your social media posts. You had this TV story to produce, and then next day you do another one, I assume, right? It's like it's, there's so much more of this 24-hour availability and 24-hour news cycle now has completely changed the nature of the business in a way that, on, on one hand, is pretty exciting and pretty cool from just the, the constant stream of news if you want it. But I imagine as a working journalist, it's, it, it's probably exhausting or feels exhausting at times.
3: Well, it, you know, it does, it, 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 it never really ends. You are, it, you are, even if you are not presenting something on the air or online, you're always thinking about it. You're always, you're, you're always perhaps seeing another story around the corner or seeing uh, another, another uh, facet of the story you covered that day that you didn't get in that day's report. You know, maybe now you're off work, but, but, you know. Hey, that's an interesting thing. Uh, let me tweet about that a little bit uh, or let me or let me rewrite that paragraph in the online story and ask the online editors to add this to what we've we've done. So, uh, yeah, it's you know, there there always there always was 24 hour news, but now you can do 24 hour news.
0: <laughs> now, did you were there people at Cairo TV? I'm trying to remember who was even the the, the core network, the anchor team in the early 80s. Were there people there who kind of became your mentor, or were sort of these old-time figures in TV news that we might recognize their names now? They're not on, not on the air anymore, but that who sort of helped you early in your career and kind of functioned as a mentor in your early years. You know, there there were
3: informal mentors all around, and it's you know um, one person who who um, who really uh, helped. Um, uh, you'll recall a Kyris Seven an anchor, Gary Justice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
3: you know, Gary Justice was instrumental in hiring me from uh, from Portland, and uh, you know, we didn't sit around and talk about uh, the ins and outs of journalism or whatever. But uh, you know, Gary might see something or say something that would make me think about uh, you know how how um, things were being done or how we how we could approach uh, a story differently or might have a perspective that I hadn't actually. Uh, hadn't actually noticed. Um, and, uh, um, you know, so th- th- there were, there were encounters like that. There were, you know, there were, there were people who were helpful on an ad hoc basis, you know, maybe with a particular issue or a particular perspective, and you just never knew when it would happen.
0: Yeah. There, I, I've worked in a few newsrooms. I've never really worked full-time. My stuff's always been fairly part-time, but there's a sense in a, in a, a solid TV newsroom or a radio newsroom where people like and respect each other. It feels like that comes across in the product, in the broadcast, whether it's TV or radio, whether the people like each other and trust each other. And that seems like that's been really key. And I, that seems like that was, that was certainly present in, in uh, those old days at Cairo TV. Um, and it, it seems like it's, it's still present there in the stations where you can just tell. I mean, is that – and that's kind of an outsider's perspective. Is that, is that roughly true, do you think, in your experience or –
3: you know, I, I definitely think the audience uh, can tell, especially for the, for the uh, reporters and anchors they see all, all the time. You know, they can, you know, just like when you go into a grocery store, you can tell if there are good bosses and if the staff likes and helps each other out, you'll know what the working situation is like just by the way you see them treat each other, and you see them treat you, and you know when you step into a happy workplace or a happier workplace. Uh, and it, it's the it's the same thing. A, a television newsroom may never be a happy workplace because everybody's working really hard, and uh, so you know it may be not amongst the happiest workplaces. There is there there is a lot of a lot of pressure, but you can tell. And, uh, you know, you can tell when a when a workplace is not a good uh, TV news workplace. I've had a lot of bosses. And even though I worked at the same building for nearly 40 years, I've, there's been four different companies. So I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and some of these situations have been happier than others. I'll just put it that way. Any particular- By the way, and... and, and And dropping not not to drop but too big of a hint, you know the 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 folk the Cairo Seven I retired from is an absolutely great place to work with great people and and I do miss it. excellent.
0: Now uh, one question um, in terms of the uh, and I'll let you be really generous with your time. Any really nightmarish interviews where you can sort of describe it without maybe naming the person but kind of leaving it up to us to guess and kind of maybe you had to interview the person multiple times, maybe they were an elected official or some kind of a a big wig or something that sort of, they were just sort of notoriously difficult to to get in touch with or to get information out of.
3: Boy, that, that is a, that's a, that is a tough question. You know, Um, (laughs) you know, um, I I think uh, something, it's kind of something uh, similar to uh, what uh, quarterback Russell Wilson says, you know, that you, um, you have to have a short memory. (laughs) Uh, you threw an interception. You know that was last year, even though it was two minutes ago. And now you got to go out and and somehow get the team back to a touchdown, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, I I uh, I don't know that there were any like you know unbelievably awful, terrible um, interviews. Um, and you know, there are people who you know there are definitely people who didn't want to answer questions. One of the talk around questions, uh, you know, didn't want to um, uh, clarify their positions, Uh, but those weren't necessarily bad interviews because the audience saw them squirm. The audience (laughs) knew what was going on. You know, know, I always like to say, it's not the questions that are, that are the problem. It's the answers that are the problem. (laughs) Questions aren't tough. The answers are tough and the audience can tell. So, you know, Uh, I will try to ask you uh, direct questions and give you a chance to be clear. But if you don't (laughs) want to take the chance, your answer is still going on
0: TV. Very nice. That's great. Well, congratulations on a great long career at Cairo TV. I will point out you were able to dodge the question about how old you were in 1982. So I'll congratulate you on dodging that question very well. But we can figure out based on being in second grade in 1963, I think we can guess about your age. So anyway. um... I'll let
3: you guys figure it out. The only reason I dodged it is because I couldn't get my calculator on the phone quick enough while we were talking.
0: Thanks again to longtime TV journalist Essex Porter for that interview. Now, I'm Felix and This is a special summertime edition of Cascade of History. We're going back into the archives of the old Columbia Conversations podcast, which I founded and produced for the Washington State Historical Society for a couple of years. Now, it was in July 2021. Right after the heat dome had happened that I spoke with meteorologist Scott Sistek with the express intent of creating a conversation that historians could listen to in the future to understand that summer's extreme weather. I think it turned out pretty nice. What I really am excited about is, you know, we just lived through this thing called the heat dome. I don't think it really has an official name that has stuck yet, but it's so fresh in people's minds. I love the idea of being able to talk about something that's obviously historic and will be considered historic for a long time probably, but while it's still fresh in everyone's minds... And with somebody who's an expert on the science part of it, like you. So wh- what was it that we just lived through in the last uh, 10 days or so ago here in the Pacific Northwest?
2: Boy, we're still trying to, like, you know, gather the pieces of what happened and, and pour over the data as well, because it, it really was something unprecedented. And, you know, we talk about, you know, you, you, we toss that word around a lot, especially lately. It's just like, you know, it's unprecedented. I've never seen this before. But this was a heat wave that went beyond the scope of any local meteorologist or even national meteorologist would even think was remotely possible here. And I know when we were kind of leading up to it, you know, I guess that's part of the story was that our forecast models actually picked up on this several days in advance. Like a week ahead of time, they started sounding this alarm of like, it's going to be well over 100 in Seattle for multiple days and, and some places are going to be over 110 <laughs> And we looked at it going, okay, there's obviously something wrong with the forecast charts. There's, there's some bad data in here. You know, we don't know what's wrong. I know they just had done some changes to our national uh, models in the last couple of years. And we're starting to think, oh, my goodness, is there something that's calibrated? It's like, okay, it's going to be hot. But, you know, we're seeing these numbers like 111, 114, <laughs> you know, multiple days over 100. And it's like, okay, that just can't happen. And I know then the next day the model comes out same thing. Next <laughs> day it comes out, same thing. And people are starting, you know, there's a lot of armchair meteorologists out there that can see these models. <laughs> and they're like, this has got to be crazy, right? Is this going to happen? And we're like, it's not going to happen. It's, you know, we're thinking, okay, maybe a hundred, you know, how many times have it a hundred in Seattle before three. And when it's like a hundred, a hundred and three are on there, we had another a uh, hundred degree back in the old days of the federal building. And so you're looking at, you know, we have a hundred and, 50-some-odd years of Seattle history to work off of of temperatures, and there's nothing anywhere close to this, like orders of magnitude not even close.
0: The the model thing was interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I watch, I follow you on social media, and I remember the, it was a few years ago when Seattle had its first sort of social media snowstorm where people were posting pictures of... You know rulers stuck in the snow on their back decks, and um, you know you could see sort of micro conditions around the the area just based on what people were saying and, and posting pictures of. But I like what you were doing during this event because um, in talking about those models, you know it, I, I, I'm in my early 50s, and I will admit to having at one day in the past having wanted to be a TV meteorologist. And I interned with Jeff Renner back in 1988, and part of my job was tearing paper off of a teletype, mm-hmm. you know, and pinning mm-hmm. things to the wall. Yep. And nobody had access to the information other than, you know, the weather service or someone at the airport or, you know, the King Five there in the in the basement at the old place along Dexter. But now all this data is online. And as you said, there's all these armchair meteorologists weighing in. And the um that discussion about the models was really interesting because it really did these models are used pretty much every day and there's multiple computers and multiple organizations that have these models that predict weather out a week or a few weeks in advance. And there was that skepticism and that doubt, but then it sort of kind of eroded away, and sure enough, the models end up being right. I guess I guess that's encouraging about science, right?
2: Yeah, it was encouraging that the models picked up on this because if it had been just humans looking at it, we would have probably discounted a lot of it. We would have been like, you know, okay, this just can't be. And and luckily, the models have stuck with it. Now, there was there – there's like the American model was going even – farther out on the limb than we ended up. So it was, you know, that was part of the equation here was, you know, okay, Seattle's all-time record high was 103, and that happened once. And most of the time, if we get a heat wave, it's the upper 90s. And this model was predicting 117 in Seattle, 118, 119. I think we even had a couple show up as 120 in the Puget Sound area in the southeast, uh, parts like King County and out there. And so now we're thinking like, okay, this is hotter than Las Vegas has ever been. What, you know, what's going on? And then as it got closer and closer, that one American model was still, even to the day of and the day before, was still going 117. But most of the other ones were kind of like, okay, 107, 109, which still, you know, shattering all-time records. But it seemed like, okay, well, if we're going to do it, at least it's, you know, especially after we had hit 102 and 104 the days before, it's like, okay, well, now the 100 barrier is totally shattered, and this these haven't even hit the hottest day yet. Mm-hmm. So now we're starting to believe it. But it was – I guess it was a win for the models in picking up that it was going to be <laughs> such a historic, you know, event, uh, even if some of the details weren't quite right. That's crazy.
0: And so why did it happen?
2: Is there is there an easy explanation for what happened last week? Well, we kind of know what happened uh, at that part. was, you know, that part we're still, you know, getting a pretty good grasp on. That's why it happened is still everyone's kind of shaking their head. But it was just, it was a record uh, strength ridge of high pressure, like numbers that we have never seen anywhere close to in the Pacific Northwest. And these type of high pressure systems are more common down in like the four corners region of the desert, like the Arizonas, the New Mexicos, the Nevadas. That's why they get to 111, 115 in the summertime. You know, these ridges pop up. They create a lot of hot air. They create a lot of subsidence. And, and you know, you have a desert. But this time that ridge popped up and set up shop right in southern British Columbia, which is not where these are supposed to set up. And then it put us on kind of like, you know, a ridge in itself is hot, but we were kind of on the hottest side of it because the way the air flows around a ridge of high pressure, it was bringing in air from, the northeast and east, which is where it's already hot and dry. And so it was like hot from the ridge and then even hotter with this wind coming in. And it's just like if you had to design a perfect storm of heat, this would have been it. But I, I contend that if you would have last year, you know, gathered up all the meteorologists, maybe not even just in the northwest, maybe just like even you know in the United States, get all the scholars together and say, design the worst case scenario heat wave for the Pacific Northwest and give us your predicted highs for Seattle and Portland. They would have undercut this. Wow. I, I would have thought like, if you would have asked me, it's like, what was the hottest Seattle could possibly be? I would have been like maybe 105 or 106. I know when we hit 103, there were some spots in the city that hit 105. Uh. And so it's like, that was, at the time we thought that was such an extreme anomaly. Like this will never happen again. And now we went, you know, a couple orders of magnitude beyond that.
0: Now, I remember that last time we crossed over 100 was back in 2009. I think it was in late July, So which is kind of the more traditional time of year when you see the hot temperatures. Was what happened in 2009 kind of a junior version of what happened last week? Was there that ridge and those sort of uh, downslope winds and stuff, or was it something yes, totally different?
2: It, it was similar. It was a ridge that was kind of up there. It was a little more of a traditional, you know, this one, this current one was just like, a big heat dome right over BC. Huh. The 2009 one, from what I remember was more of like an entire West coast Ridge that we just kind of got part of it. Cause I think a lot of the West coast was pretty hot then. And, uh, it wasn't quite as strong of a Ridge and it was, gosh, I'm trying to remember cause it's been so long ago, <laughs> but it had to do with, you know, it took a couple days to warm up. And then the big thing that helped us get to 103 that day was, uh, it was kind of muggy, so that night before it did not cool very well. It only got down to, like, 71. Uh-huh. So we had the launching point. We started out kind of warm, and then the heat hit. And we weren't starting from, like, 62. We were starting from, you know, 9 degrees warmer. Got it. And away we went. So it was it was kind of similar. But uh, this one was just, you know, unbelievable. And when that happened, I don't think, I don't remember what exactly happened in British Columbia, but they weren't cooking at 100. 1,520. And, and generally
0: speaking, I mean, in the summer we have high pressure is more common, and high pressure tends to be more associated with clear skies and nice weather, mm-hmm. and low pressure tends to be associated with sort of more unsettled conditions that allow for moisture uplift and creation of clouds and that sort of thing in storm systems. But this was something that this this high-pressure ridge you're talking about, it actually helped, uh, it helped boost the temperatures because of the way it was changing the airflow and from where it was positioned?
2: Yes, and it's the only way that we get hot here is we have to keep back the marine, the, you know, the ocean winds, ah. any kind of trickle of marine air. And that, you know, the Pacific Ocean's in the 50s, the water temperature's in the 50s year-round. So think of that as just like this massive air conditioner that just sits offshore. And so the only way we hold that back is if you kind of get like this east wind. And that is what happened with this. The high pressure will cause sinking air. And as air sinks, it kind of warms up. So you kind of get this dome that was already, you know, super intense dome, you know, record, record high pressure, um, that was pushing down kind of, it was almost like raining air from above, if you want to think about it. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly like that, but like, you know, heat, air sinking from above. So it's getting warmer that way. Now we're getting a little bit of east wind that's coming from hot and dry areas. And then we get a third boost here when it comes down the Cascades and the Olympic mountains. as air sinks, it, it gets hotter and drier. And so that was adding like another layer of heating to all this. So we've wow. had like several layers of heat. And then that whole big refreshing, you know, natural air conditioning that's just sitting tantalizingly right <laughs> off the coast can't get here because that east wind acts like a wall. It just keeps pushing it back and pushing it back. Yeah. And I was surprised because most of the charts seem to suggest that the immediate coastlines were going to escape the heat. And it was going to be warm on the coast, but it wasn't going to be ridiculously hot. And I think a whole bunch of people ran to the coast thinking, oh, it'll only be the 80s here. <laughs> and then it turned out that the east wind was, you know, more potent than we thought. And the coast baked just as bad, if not worse, in spots over there. And I know, like, Hoquiam hit, gosh, I think Hoquiam went over 100. They were like 102, 103. Wow. And then if you want to talk about some time, like, the forks hitting 110 is just like, that was the poster child of how broken this heat wave was. Wow.
0: Well, yeah, what were some of the other highlights or lowlights? in statistically, do you have the numbers there in front of you for some of the the big I, high temperatures around the area? Okay, I have I have all the
2: crazy numbers here. Okay. So we'll start with <laughs> we'll start with Seattle and Seattle, of course, you know, the big Kahuna around here. Uh, it hit 102 on Saturday, then 104 on Sunday, which broke the all time record high. Which normally would be big fanfare, and it turns out to be second fiddle because on Monday it hit 108. Oh. So that is now our God. new standard, which I don't. I'm going to go on a limb and think we're never going to get there again. It's not in our <laughs> lifetimes, but we'll see. So Seattle at 108, this was some of my favorite stats that I was updating. Um, it is hotter than it has ever been in some of these other cities like Atlanta. Their <laughs> all-time record high is 106. Washington, D.C., also 106. Chicago, 105. Uh, Boston, 104. Wow! So you think of these cities that are like traditionally pretty hot, and now Seattle's been hotter. And then <laughs> Portland went... Next level, you know, insanity here. They hit 116 on Monday, which broke their all-time record high by nine degrees. It had only been 107 was their all-time high before. Wow. And they went to 116. So Portland now can brag that it's been hotter there than Sacramento and Los Angeles (laughs) and Dallas and Austin. All of those cities have never been to 116, and they were only a degree short of Las Vegas' all-time record, which was 117.
0: I, I'm laughing because I'm sitting in my cool basement now and kind of yep. recalling how hot it was. Even down in wow. my basement, by the time it got to be Monday night, we had nowhere to go in my house. We were just – we were miserable everywhere. So um yeah. I mean, those numbers. Now, I've heard someone describing this as sort of a a millennial occasion, like it, it won't happen for another 900 years. And I've looked at snowstorm history before, and we had this incredible winter of 1861, 1862 that also seems like something that only happens every thousand years or so. But what I love about it is that it reminds me a little bit about how people who are really into baseball or into statistics like batting averages and that sort of thing of their favorite players going back 100 years. Weather, um, and the kind of, the way that you approach weather, which I love, I love the stuff you've done with your different blog posts and the way you've kind of talked about historical weather events in the Pacific Northwest. Weather seems to be, have a real element of history and data mixed into understanding the present and the future. Why why is that? What's your experience been kind of incorporating weather into, or excuse me, incorporating history into the way you talk about weather?
2: Well, it kind of gives us some perspective of just how, I think part of it is like perspective of how the planet works, of just, you know, how you get like this traditional climate, and then you get these extremes on here. But for me, I'm a numbers guy. I love looking up these stats. And, you know, as terrible as that heat wave was, there was some sort of just like living through this, like realizing what you're going through right now is something that, you know, is multi generational as far as not seeing this sort of thing. And it just, seeing all these numbers from the past just tells you how rare this was. That, you know, we have records back to, like I said, the 18. Some of the very early structures of the 1860s and 70s, and like actual daily data back to like the 1890s, and you know we were pretty good at measuring temperatures and and weather conditions and wind and 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 all that. And just like none of this has been anywhere close to that, it really puts in perspective of just how historic this heat wave was, and also just how rare it can be. But also maybe that there's a lot to our climate that we don't know about that. You know, there are some of these events that happen on timescales that are much longer than, you know, generational timescales, maybe even lifetime scales, or maybe even multiple lifetime scales that I'm sure if you went back to, I don't know, the 1500s, the 1300s, it may have hit 108 in Seattle before. And so it's, you know, that kind of puts it in perspective for me of like, it's just a way to quantify and it's also a way to be able to explain, you know, better explain to people just, you know, how weather works and how rare this is. And, and for me, it's just like, Hey, you're living through something that, you know, your parents and grandparents never went through and maybe your kids and grandkids won't go through either, uh, you know, for future, I guess, generations in that sense. But uh, just, you know, that sort of thing, like I I was joking with somebody, it's like, this is going to be our old guy on the lawn moment, you know, when we're in, you know, we're like in the in the retirement home talking to the grandkids, and the great kids. Like, back in my day, it was a in Seattle, yeah. and we had it, it was a hundred degrees in our house, and and you know all. I, I heard from one of my friends that like deodorant melted in their bathroom. Yeah, like, the, that that crazy.
0: The melting. I remember hearing at one point during this, like uh, that the um the freezing level based on the radio radiosonde launch from Quillayute was at eighteen thousand feet. Yep, which,
2: eighteen two hundred and change. And,
0: and was it was it um, was it unwarranted for me to start worrying about Mount Rainier at that point?
2: Well, I know Rainier had it, it was its, it was in the '60s at Camp Muir which is at 10,000 feet. Wow! Uh, they don't obviously don't have a gate at the top of Mount Rainier, but they were estimating temperatures at the summit in the '40s. Wow! Which is unheard of. And then uh, we did have a whole lot of snowmelt. And I, if you look at uh, shameless plug, if you look at the Q13 uh, weather blog, I did a story. There's a some satellite imagery of the before and after of all the the mud and the silt that melted off all the mountains around here going through the rivers and dumping into Puget Sound you could see like this brown silt like dumping in off the Puyallup into you know Tacoma's waterway and then there was some you could you could actually see the Skagit River turn brown as it dumped into like uh Chuleta Bay oh, up man. north wow and it was really something but i know that uh, i think it was Paradise Ranger Station the snow gauge up there which is, what, about 5,400 feet up Mount Rainier, and uh, they lost 30% of their snowpack in four days.
0: Now, see, that makes me worry. <laughs> is that, I mean, sh- should we be yeah. worried about that for this season or for, for long, short-term, long-term? What's the What are the possible ramifications of that kind of melt?
2: Well, I think we're okay. We had enough water. Luckily, it was a pretty snowy winter in the mountains. We were above normal in the snowpack, and so I think we had plenty up there, even with that massive melt off. We were doing okay. Cause even, you know, paradise was looking at like a later than normal melt out. Usually they lose all their snow by about mid July, early to mid July. And we were on pace to go kind of beyond that before the heat wave. Now the heat wave hit will probably end up somewhere right around average, maybe a couple days before, but not too extreme. So everything I've seen seems to suggest that like water supplies are okay. You know, we did if had this been a super dry winter, Like 2003, where there was hardly any snow at Snoqualmie, and then that came through, we might be really hurting. But I think, luckily, um, I think the winter kind of gave us a, you know kind of patted us against some of the major, like, long-term impact from that heat wave. Oh,
0: well, that's reassuring. Okay, good. Um, and then, since this is a historical document, people can play this audio back 100 years from now, and, and they can say whether
2: you were right or not. So that's good.
0: Um, right. So you're on the don't, record.
2: They'll know if I say, like, oh, Seattle will never go to 108. It's like, well, remember that big heat wave of 2048? What was Scott thinking? Was,
0: yeah. So, I mean, where does this fit into the the, the climate change debate, which in some ways, shouldn't be a debate at all. But in terms of understanding climate change and reacting to climate change responding, what does this tell us? Or what is this? What is it? information does this give us for moving forward?
2: It's it's still under a lot of research that, you know, with climate change, heat waves will become more frequent. And when heat waves happen, they'll, probably, they'll start drifting higher and higher. Now, this particular event was so far beyond that, you know, it was probably going to happen no matter what. It's just what at what magnitude would it have hit had you know, had the Earth not been warming a degree in the last you know few decades here, you know, would Seattle have hit 108? Probably not. Would it have hit 105? It might. I so I think it's, you know, we talk more about you know heat waves will become more common, and when they happen, they'll start gradually bumping higher and higher. Now that doesn't mean, necessarily mean that things like this event are going to start happening every other year, every five years, or even every ten years. It just means that, you know, when these events happen they may be a few degrees hotter than they would have been without climate change. Like if you'd have taken this pattern and put it back in 1940, what would have happened? It probably still would have happened. It still would have been record shattering heat. It just wouldn't probably have been this much of a record shattering heat. And then these days that in the past used to be, you know, it's a heat wave, it's 94 in Seattle. Now maybe that heat wave is 97, 98. Maybe the heat wave that only happens two times a year is now happening three or four times a year and it becomes cumulative that it's just, okay, well, each time we have a heat wave, there's impacts to that. It dries everything out. It makes, you know, wildfires more common and, and uh, it can start, you know, tapping water supplies. So yes, there could be a cumulative effect to it, but there is a, it's more of like, you know, long-term, you know, frequency and intensity, but not necessarily like, you know, it would have only been 87 degrees in Seattle had, You know, had climate change not been a thing, that probably wouldn't have been. You know, it still would have been hot without it. But it's it's a frequency, it's an intensity. But these anomalous things will probably still going to happen no matter what. It's just how anomalous will they be? I see.
0: Now, are you originally a Northwest guy, or where are you
2: from originally? Yeah, I kind of uh, I was born in Port Angeles. Uh, My dad was uh, Coast Guard, so we moved around a bit as a kid. uh, You know, transferred around, but mostly West Coast, and then. Uh, so I kind of say I grew up on the Pacific Coast, you know, Washington, Oregon, California, all the down there. And it, then uh, came back to Seattle for UW and have been there ever since.
0: And then your broadcasting career, can you tell me where you, what stations you worked for?
2: Sure. Well, it's a short list. Um, I started working at Como right out of college as soon as I graduated from UW. Uh, I started working oh. with Steve Poole, and I was his weather producer. Actually, you talked about the maps with Jeff Renner. That's what I did with Steve Poole <laughs> I first First three years, you go in, you tear the maps off the big printer, the dot matrix (laughs) printer and hang them up on the wall with a clipboard and go from there. And then your internet became a thing. And I started writing on there. Most of my, I've never been on TV. I've never been a broadcast uh, meteorologist. I've always been just online and kind of behind the scenes. But as the internet kept growing, um, I would write the forecast online because Steve was like, you know, I've I've got this TV gig. If you want to write the weather, and he was great about that of like you know no ego or anything just you know, you, you could go ahead you know write that's totally fine and I would just take it and I would write the forecast online every day and that's how people got to, to know me and and hear of me and then at, you know 2007 Como said here have a blog and so I started writing weather stories almost every day and then it just kind of went from there and now more recently just in the last few months I've accepted a job with Fox Weather and helping out Q13 here in town so I'm still writing seattle weather and then i'll soon be writing about national weather as well now oh, that's very cool
0: now just for for the, the heat dome as it went down you know i was following you on twitter it seems like you didn't rest at all for were you, were you up 24 hours a day there for a while or it, just, it looked like most, that? just
2: looked like most just looked like I was a couple hours of sleep in there but it's like you know weather happens you, i want to be in the middle of it and i know a lot of people you know look to twitter for help and and it was very scary for some people i know that you know parts of those areas and in southeastern King County, we're going over 110 degrees, oh. and so many people here don't have air conditioning. And I could, you know, luckily I live in Snohomish County near the water, so it, it was only 101 here. <laughs> so I kind of felt like, you know, as bad as it was, I was in a spot where it, it could have been much worse. But as I was watching the numbers come in that Monday afternoon, and it's just like, okay, 108, oh, now it's 111, now it's 112, but some of these gauges they're unofficial. We're reporting like 115, 116, mm. 117. I think officially the hottest temperature in the Puget Sound region was 113 uh, at Maple Valley and Darrington. Wow. But just, I was trying to imagine just, you know, the people that were in these 113s and, and they're not used to it. And it had been over a hundred degrees the, the two days before and just how, how awful it was inside everyone's houses that couldn't get to a cooling center and just, people that decide to tough it out. And, and, you know, it was hot here, but it was, you know, I think about, okay, 101 here, it was 12 degrees hotter than that in some places around here and just the, the hot wind blowing. And well, so I was really kind of hoping I could just get people through it. You know, I tried a little bit of humor in there just to kind of <laughs> keep it going and just to like, not think about it. it's like, okay, all we have to do is run out the clock. And, and, you know, there was that, the part that doesn't get talked so much about the heat wave was how it ended, you know, later that day, you know, the Marine layer finally came, came in the East wind surrendered. It went over East of the mountains and the West wind came roaring in. And some of these places dropped, you know, 30, 40 degrees in a matter of a couple hours.
0: Wow. That's, that is, I mean, that's, that's just crazy. Does that do anything? Does that damage anything about the, uh, the, the plants or animals or is that, is that its I, own kind of what? set of trouble?
2: I guess it, I, I, I'm not sure. I didn't hear of any damage from the quick cool down. I mean, we sometimes, when we have heat waves, they can end in a hurry here. Yeah. But uh, the one where, like, Shelton was was crazy because they were, I've got the stats in front of me here, they were at 110 in late afternoon, and then at 7 o'clock they were 106. And then the Marine layer came in with a charge through the Chehalis Gap, and then it went the next hour, 8 o'clock it was 80, at nine o'clock, it was sixty-nine, and then at ten o'clock, it was sixty-four degrees. The wind was blowing at thirty-five miles an hour, oh and it was raining. That's... And I looked it up, and the wind chill was fifty-nine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's almost terrifying. That 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 kind of a rapid change, unless, yeah. especially if you didn't, if you think about sort of pre-contact times, to be just to to yeah. not have any data, not have any reassuring person coming through some form of technology to go to be that hot, and then a few hours later. Almost like not quite freezing, but very cold and raining. that must that, yeah. I mean that's just that's it makes my head spin thinking about that, I but not I can't imagine I somebody I saw a tweet from somebody saying, like whatever religion um uh, worships the marine layer that that's the one I now believe in, or something <laughs> 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 and, and that was and what, what you said you know you know the east wind surrendered, I love the imagery of the wind surrendering what what is what actually clicked or what happened that made that that switch like that?
2: All right. So most of our heat waves involve a therm- something called a thermal trough. And it's sort of like the heat creates its own like almost like its own little low pressure center. But you have to think of it sort of like like a I think, like a stripe on the weather map. It's like this vertical line and the air will flow toward that vertical line. You think of like the stripe of low pressure. So if you're if that line is to your west, it's going to draw in air from the east. So as long as the thermal trough sits west of of seattle we're going to get the east wind and cook when the thermal trough kind of moves right on top of you that's when it's the most intense and that's what was happening monday afternoon is it was sitting right over the puget sound area that's when we hit 113 but as that trough moves inland it starts allowing west wind which is that cooler wind off the ocean to the coast so that's why the coast always you know crashes their temperatures first so that was part of the play by play on monday was watching the coast cool down because you know, Astoria cooled down that morning, Hoquiam cooled down around one or two o'clock, Forks was at 110 at four <laughs> o'clock, and then it was down to 61 a few hours later. So we're like, okay, here we go. And then my, my parents live in Port Angeles on the water, and they're calling me, like, I could see the wind coming down the straight on a Vuka. It's like, okay, it's coming through there. But eventually that thermal trough jumps the mountains. And as soon as it goes over the cascades, now that barrier is gone the east wind is gone and the west wind can come rushing in and that's exactly what happened and you'll see it go through the port angeles and you'll see it come through the chehalis gap in shelton and that's why shelton dropped had that radical weather change of uh what is it 46 degrees i think and yeah 46 degrees in six hours i think it ended up being so that's, that's cool
0: that's amazing. That's and I like you. I like, I like the fact you mentioned your parents. You know, getting in touch from Port Angeles. I have. I'm the youngest of nine kids. A big family. a lot of family all over Western Washington. A few people in Eastern Washington. And even before the internet, we loved calling each other and talking about weather as it was underway. And it's it's so cool for people to be able to check in with each other and you know text back and forth about the temperatures where they are and everything. Especially if you have family on the other side of the mountains. And so that oh, the, yeah. the, the way technology has led us. I don't know we all before we had no choice, the weather's just here, and we all have to experience it, but there's something encouraging or something comforting knowing that we can kind of check in with each other and like follow someone like you on Twitter and kind of be aware of what's going on, so it's not like we're totally in the dark so that's that's it's it's a very hopeful way so well, listen, Scott Sistek, you've been very generous with your time, and congratulations on the new gig, and uh, thanks for sharing with us about this yet-to-be-officially-named event. I guess we're calling it Heat Dome 2021 or Heat Dome 21 or something. I don't
2: know. Is there a Sure. Name, is there a, <laughs> there's not an official name yet, is there? I haven't seen one yet. I'm kind of surprised. Usually the internet's pretty clever when quick to the draw with these sort of things, but I think everybody was just so, like, melted like i think creativity was like <laughs> just not on anyone's brain right there is all <laughs> and,
0: and i imagine it'll launch a thousand theses or a dissertations probably oh, we'll be learning about this for decades i imagine
2: absolutely i'm right. sure lots of grad students will be covered for right.
0: for a while all right thank you scott really appreciate it sure thanks for having me thanks for joining me on this summertime edition of cascade of history on space 101.1 fm right here from Magnuson Park in Seattle. I want to thank my guests, meteorologist Scott Sistek and longtime TV journalist Essex Porter. For more information about this and other programs, please visit space101fm.org. I'm Felix Bunnell for Cascade of History.
1: That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonell.
0: This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park.